Welcome to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast, brought to you by DSW Ministries. Your host is singer, songwriter, speaker, and domestic violence advocate, Diana Winkler. She is passionate about helping survivors in the church heal from domestic violence and abuse and trauma. This podcast is not a substitute for professional counseling or qualified medical help. Now, here is Diana. Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming by and coming along this journey with me in healing. And we have an unforgettable guest for you today. When I read you his bio, you are not going to believe where this guy has been through and what he has accomplished. We're talking about Dr. Joe Martin. He reached out to me on the podcast and I discovered that he has the number one men's podcast on Apple Podcasts. And I feel bad that I wasn't familiar with his ministry because he's been around for quite a while. Now, I don't want to give away all the good stuff, but let me just give you a glimpse into a Dr. Martin's story that he is going to share with us today. He grew up in Miami, Florida with a teenage single alcoholic mom. He was sexually abused by a family member for three years. He graduated high school with a C average, but he was the first one in his family and his neighborhood, in fact, to go to college. He graduated top in his class at age 20. He started a business at 22. He got married. He became a university professor at 24. He earned a master's degree and a doctorate at 28. And he wrote his first two books by 30 years of age. Now, you can't outrun your past. After his first marriage, he started on a path to destruction with adultery and pornography. It was a hard road of recovery coming back from the bottom of the barrel. So find out how he learned to be a real man, husband, a father, Christ follower, and a leader in his community. Invite the men in your life to come and listen to this testimony. You will be blessed and changed. So here is my conversation with Dr. Joe Martin. Welcome, Dr. Joe Martin, to the show. I so appreciate you coming and sharing your incredible story with us. Now, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me today. I'm, I'm really excited. You know, I am a female who listens to your men's podcast, and I can see why it's so popular. It is so good. <laughs> you know, I, I'm you know to hear that I, we do have women out there. They don't usually make themselves known in our audience. I usually know when they send me emails. I'm like, I can't see that your name is a female in the email. <laughs> but most of them, we don't know. We don't cater to women. Even, but we have a lot of women, we realize it now, who are listening to the show, which is very encouraging to me to know that. Well, you know, it really helps me to understand the, the thought processes and struggles of the men in my life and those that I serve as an abuse advocate. Now, I listen to a lot of podcasts, but I, I don't normally listen to men's podcasts. But, you know, there, there are a lot of bad influences and negative messages out there. 
that just feed the ungodly toxic culture that we live in. Right, right. And what I absolutely love about your ministry is that you are out there being a positive influence going against the flow. And may I use the word countercultural? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No more excuses. Get in the game. You can rise above where you came from. And here's how God can help you live a victorious Christian life in this day and age. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad that um, you, you recognize that. I, my, my thing is when we did our podcast is that I you know, usually go from where you've been delivered from. That's where you try to target people, where you've, space where you've come from. And I just knew that I had a lot of questions that I couldn't find answers to. And I thought, wow, if I can create that space for men to go to a safe place, which you know as abuse advocate that everything is about creating a safe place where they can have dialogue and not feel ashamed but at the same time, not allowing them to use their past as an excuse mm -hmm. for present failure. Mm -hmm. You know, that yes, your past may explain you, but it doesn't excuse you from making better choices and better decisions. And what better person to bring that than a person who had to walk that same path himself. Yes. And so um, I'm glad that you recognize that, that I'm trying to provide that space for these men. Now, I read the listeners, some of your bio. So they already know that you did not have an easy life growing up. Now, can you set the stage for us, how it all began? Well, you know, my story gets summarized in four phases. And what I'll do is I'll stop with um, the first two, um, which is I call it from rags to riches to ruin to redemption is how I, I break it up. And if I ever wrote a book or an autobiography, that's I'll break it up in those four sections. And the rags part is where most of the trauma began. And I'll say the trauma that where our cult was the victim um, part of the story that I'll stop at part two, but part three is where I ruined my life, where I became the person who did the abusing, you know? So I, I got the bookends mm. on the person who was hurt. And then I was the person who hurt other people, mm -hmm. but the rag started with me growing up in one of the toughest, um, inner city ghettos in Miami, Florida, in a place called Liberty city in Miami. And for those who are not familiar with Liberty city, cause you know, in big cities, there are always these boroughs or these sections of town. Well, um, ours is famous for two things. If you're over the age of 40, um, Liberty City is famous for uh, a notorious rap group called Two Live Crew. <laughs> yeah. that, that is responsible for why there's explicit lyrics and music and allowed, why it's allowed and you can say whatever you want to say because they won a lawsuit against um, Broward County, which is in Fort Lauderdale, a county north of Miami, where they were um, incarcerated because they were cursing and had um, women cladly dressed on stage and they were able to win because of freedom of speech. And now all you have to do is put explicit lyrics, labels on your music and you can say whatever you want to say. And wow. so anybody over 40 knows about Liberty City is because of Two Live Crew, they put us on the map. If they're under the age of 40, they know about us because of this, another notorious thing called, this game called Grand Theft Auto. Yes. <laughs> and so when they make a, a video game about the city where you were born and raised, that's not usually a good thing. <laughs> and so it's not about what most people think of Miami when they think of South Beach, the celebrities. I never even saw the beach growing up as a kid because I was in my neighborhood. And it was so isolated for me, even though it was a huge inner city ghetto, you're talking about five high schools, two malls. I never met a white child till I was 12. But my mom was 16 years old when she had me as a teenager. And then a year and 27 days after that, she had my sister um, um, 
a, a year later. So by the time she was 17 years old, Diana, she had two children and she had to drop out of high school to take care of us. My dad, after that second child, decided he didn't want to have anything to do with this. So he kind of bowed out and he left. So my mom had two kids at the age of 17, a high school dropout. Her mom passed away when she was only um, 12 years old and she was being raised by her dad. And her dad had 12 kids. She raised by her dad and her dad ends up dying about 10 years later. Oh. So she lost both parents by the time she was 27 years old mm -hmm. and she had two kids. And because of that, my mom ended up going into a real deep, dark depression. And this mother became um, um, an alcoholic. She just started drowning her sorrows in, in alcohol. She cooked her last meal when I was only 10 years old. That's when my grandfather passed. And she pretty much said, wow, you know, she kind of checked out, even though we were physically still there. And if she wasn't, um, if she wasn't drunk, she would be a pretty decent mother but she was also an angry person when she drank. And so mm -hmm. she would come physically abusive, sometimes verbally, well, a lot of times verbally abusive, but sometimes occasionally physically abusive, but she wasn't always that way. She just, when that alcohol got in her system, it just, she was trying to deal with her demons. And as a child, I didn't understand that that's what she was going through, but I just thought, wow, she's been a bad mom, but I didn't realize that I was older. Oh, wow, she was just hanging on by a thread trying to take mm -hmm. care of us. But during her good days, um, she decided I needed a male role model in my life. And so she recruited a family member. Um, and her criteria for what she thought was a good male role model was a person who did not, who had a job, who, was incar who weren't incarcerated, you know. And because in our neighborhood, we had, man, we had thousands of males, but not really any real men. And most of the men in our neighborhood, the males in our neighborhood were either in jail, gangbangers, violent men, abusive to women, disrespectful. It, it was horrible. Um, I, drew, I grew up around a lot of crime and um, drug activity. So my mom didn't want me to have anything to do with that. So she recruited a family member who was just, she thought was the opposite of that. And to his credit, this man took better care of me than she, she did because he did have a job. He, he wasn't drinking and abusing alcohol, at least at the time. And this man um, took care of me, took me under his wing and and provided for me, but he was prepping me. I didn't know at the time he was prepping me as a 12 year old. And for three years, he abused me physically and sexually. Mm -hmm. And it was horrible. And it was probably the worst years of my life. And even after he left, I was suicidal from the age of 12 to 16. He left oh, when I was 15. No. And I still had to battle with the shame, the guilt and depression. Never tell telling my mom about going through this. So and I'm even sparing you some of the other traumatic stuff that I saw. I, I, like I, for instance, I was about to leave this out because I said, well, I don't have time to talk about that. By the time I reached the age of 16, I had um, buried six of my friends oh, and watched no. six of my friends murdered. And it's one thing to go to one funeral, um, but it's nothing when you've witnessed the murder of your friends and then you go to six funerals and all the caskets, caskets are small. It just does something on you internally. Yes. And I wasn't getting therapy or counseling for any of this. It was just me suppressing it and trying mm -hmm. to um, ignore it and believing that this is just normal. Every kid goes through this. And it had me questioning everything about my life. This man who abused me had me question, question my masculinity. My friends um, dying at the, um, before I was age of 16 had me question my mortality. Most kids just wanted to grow up and be athletes and entertainers. They would ask me, little Joe, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I used to say, and I, I meant it, I say alive. Wow. I thought if I just made it to 18, I did something monumental because I never saw my kids, my friends make it to 18 years old. 
And so mm-hmm. at least my closest friends. And so I, there's a lot of stuff going on in my head. And because of that, I just prayed to God that I would just make it out of Liberty City because I was suicidal. It got really bad when I was 16, when I was about to take my own life. And I'll spare the details of that story unless you bring it back, if you let me want to go into detail about it. But I had an encounter with God and I did not do it. But I made, you know how you cut a deal with God? Say, God, if you just let me make it out of this situation, I promise you. So I made one of those deals with God that if you just let me make it to my 18th birthday, that was magical for me. If I could make it to 18, that I would never consider doing something like that again, which I thought I meant that when I said that until I ruined somebody else's life, you know, but I I promise I would never do that again. That I'll also come back and try to help kids in a similar situation. And I never thought college was in my, my, my future. No one in our family ever graduated from high school. And so I didn't care how I made it out. I just wanted to make it out. So my ticket out was going to be join the military. But um, because they had bused me to a predominantly white school, that's when I met white kids for the first time. I noticed that some of my friends who were graduated from high school were going to college. And I was confused because I thought you had to be smart to go to college. No. And, and so some of my friends, I'm thinking, they can't even spell college. How are they going to college? <laughs> right? But they were all my white friends. Now, none of my black friends were going to college. None, most of my black friends weren't even graduating because they didn't, you know, they had to go to summer school or they couldn't graduate on time. So the friends who were graduating on time were all my friends were all white. And mm-hmm. when they told me they were going to college, it didn't make any sense because a lot of them, they didn't even go to class half the time. <laughs> thinking, How are they going to go to college? So my thinking was, okay, well, maybe if they, I say, I'm dumb. Okay. My friends are dumb. But they're dumb and they're going to college. Maybe I'm dumb enough to go to college too. That was my thinking. Yeah. Right? And so I decided not to go to the military and decide to try college. And I was turned down by so many colleges because I had low SAT scores. Um, I had barely graduated from um, high school with a 2.2 GPA. Now we go from the rags to the richest part. I call it the richest part because I was able to get into a community college because I got turned down at least by 30 colleges. And I got into a community college because they'll let anybody in community college as long as you're breathing, right? So I got into <laughs> yeah. community college, but it was eight hours away from home. Never left the city of Miami before. Went to, went to this town, less than 5,000 people in it. Went to this small college in a place called Niceville, Florida. It actually is a place called Niceville, Florida. <laughs> and I went to school there. My first semester, I signed up for 17 credits because I was stupid because I didn't know you don't, that's too many credits to sign up for. Overachiever. <laughs> yeah, but I didn't know it. I thought you'd sign up as many as you can and get out as fast as you can. And so I signed up for 17 credits my first semester in college, Dinah, 4.0. And never made A's in anything except for um, PE when I was in high school. But I made a 4.0 my first semester in college, which proved to me I could do it. After that, my life just changed because the confidence I had then, now I realized I would outrun my past. And I ended up being the first person in my family, not only to go to college, but to graduate from college. Um, I, I transferred to a four-year school that I was offered scholarship to because the same college that turned me down would now offer me scholarships to go because yeah. I graduated with honors with my AA degree. Then I went to um, their sister school, which is in Pensacola, Florida, called the University of West Florida. And I graduated there early at the age of 20, top of my class, bought my first house before I graduated from college my senior year, moved my mom out of the projects a year after I graduated mm-hmm. from college, um, ended up um, getting married at the age of 22, started my first business at the age of 22, a clothing store, became the youngest professor ever tired to teach in the state of Florida at the age of 24, um, worked for the Florida governor's office at the age of 26 as communications director, 
had my doctorate degree by the time I reached the age of 28, had written two books before I reached the age of 30. So I was kind of an overachiever. <laughs> okay, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> hey, you know, that's awesome. That and incredible. so that's the rags to riches part. So by that time, I had now achieved the American dream. Had after overcome, almost about to kill myself at 16. Now I'm taking care of my mother. My sister now is in college. She eventually became a doctor because oh, she saw wow. her, she saw that her dumb brother could become a professor. I can become a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> and she became a doctor. And so I changed our entire gener- I changed our whole family tree because I made it in college. And nothing could get better than that. So that's my backstory of how I went from where I started my trauma to now outrunning my trauma and becoming um, quote successful by the world standards by achieving American dreams. So that's the rags to riches part. I mean, you um you were told you you wouldn't make it in college. And you yeah. pretty much kind of like, well, I'll show you. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to show you. <laughs> and you yeah. just blew everybody's expectations clear out even of my own. The water. I mean, I even surprised myself. And so it was a it was truly amazing story. And that's what launched my career because people just thought I had such a wonderful story, but they didn't know the stuff I didn't tell them. A lot of stuff I just told you I never shared with people before. Mm-hmm. All they knew is that he grew up in a poor neighborhood. They didn't know about the abuse, my mom alcoholism. <laughs> You know, all this stuff, the suicide attempts, the ideation with suicide. They didn't know any of that stuff. We starved. There was times we didn't eat. And my sister used to steal food to feed us. I mean, they didn't, I didn't tell anybody about that part of the story. Wow. But you got, you got married, you bought a house, you started a family, you're living this dream lifestyle. And then it all came crashing down. Yeah. That was that was the ruined part. And people, when they always want to know how I was able to make it out of the projects to becoming a professor and all this other stuff, I said, the more um, fascinating part of that story is not how I made it out, but how did I get it all so fast and lose it all just as fast? Because yes. I had it all by the time I reached the age of 30, but I lost it all by the time I reached the age of 40. And what the, and the underlining reason I would say is because I tried to outrun my past without healing from my past. You didn't do um, it. When I got married at 22, I never told my my wife, my ex-wife now, about the abuse. I never told about my about the suicide ideation. I never told about me watching my friends get murdered. I never told about my a dozen friends doing time in prison who got incarcerated. I never told about any of that. I never told about the bullying I had to endure as a kid because I'm, I'm not a very big guy. I say I'm five foot nothing and 100 nothing. And so you, <laughs> when and you're growing up in the hood, you're going to always get people picking on you in mm-hmm. testing your manhood. And so I never t- told about any of those things and the insecurities and the question of my masculinity and all this other stuff. So I just thought success is enough to cover that up. And so as I move into marriage, I'm thinking everything's fine. Anything we want, we can have. I've given her everything she wants. You know, she's a woman, she's happy. She doesn't have to work if she doesn't want to. We're in our twenties. Doesn't get any better than this. Wow. <laughs> but I realized that also, marriage is real life, and there's a lot of things I was I was not prepared to deal with, like conflict resolution, <laughs> like yeah. understanding her and listening. Because I couldn't understand if, she, if we had everything, why she's all why she's still not happy, and she's asking me questions like, "How come we don't connect emotionally? How come you're not very affectionate? I don't understand. Mm. Why are you, why are you punching me in the middle of the night? Oh wow! You know, and you know, just kicking me, and I didn't tell her that it was nightmares, you know, of me being abused. And so I, did, I was just, oh, I was just, oh, I was just, uh, and I was just had a nightmare and I wouldn't tell her what the specifics were 
or what the night was about that it really it was a nightmare of something that really happened you know not something that i saw in a movie or something and so as i'm going through this and there's this emotional disconnect and when the more unhappy uh, I, I became with her i wasn't looking at myself i'm just thinking she's a dissatisfied woman she's been a quote typical woman who you can't please and can't make happy not realizing that she's not married she's not she doesn't know the real me she just sees what I've done to cover up and masquerade for my healing and not understand that I had some wounds that really needed to be addressed. I needed to get counseling. I needed to be uh, go to therapy. And so when I couldn't deal with her and I'm thinking she's the problem, like most people do, whether male or female, they either overcompensate, which I've already done with the success, mm -hmm. or they look for coping mechanism to medicate. And so with me, it started with porn. Which, you know, um, you know, you say, well, I'm going to do a little bit of porn. There's no such thing as a little bit of porn. No. <laughs> a little bit of porn is like a little bit of crack. You can't, you can't do no. it. A little bit of heroin. You can't do it. Mm -hmm. And where people who are on drugs are looking for a, a deeper, uh, looking for a higher high, when you are addicted to porn, and like I was with sex, you're not looking for a higher high because you can't really get a higher high. What you're looking for is more diversity. And you're looking right. for more different for experience you've never had before. More depraved. Variety. Right, you try to be as creative as you possibly can, which took me down a deep rabbit hole that went from porn to strip clubs, to taking women home with me, to sleeping with anybody I could get my hands on who will be, have a, who will be attracted to me. But I remember when it first started was when I would complain about my wife. And then all it took was that first woman saying, boy, if I was your wife, I don't see what your wife is complaining about because they don't know my past either. How come your wife is not happy with what you guys have? And then, of course, that's feeding my ego. And I remember the first time mm -hmm. that I, I cheated on my wife, I felt so horrible and so disgusting. But, but for a moment, until I ran into problems with her again, and then I looked for more and more, and it just got out of control. And I became, I went from a porn addict to a full-blown sex addict. Oh. And when I mentioned about I became an abuser, I abused my wife. No, I didn't physically put my hands on it, but I did. I thought what I did was even worse is yeah. I, I broke her heart and shattered in a million pieces to a person who was my best friend. And it was the ultimate in betrayal. I didn't just cheat on her. I became a serial adulterer. So it was, it, I couldn't stop. I just couldn't stop. And I didn't tell her. And I was too, I didn't have enough courage to admit that I had a problem until she found out. The problem. Do you think she would have judged you or felt um, differently about you? I wasn't more concerned about her judging me as I was about how that she would not forgive me, oh. that she would leave me. And then this is another person, quote, abandoning me. It's mm -hmm. like it's a self, I'm, I'm coping with the abandonment and the abuse. And okay. now I'm giving a person many reasons to leave me. And then I'm going to say, see, she's abandoning me too, but I'm pushing her away. So I was really afraid of her saying, I'm done with you. I don't have anything to do with this. And so I just hit, I'm, I'm thinking that, wow, she's going to want to kill me. <laughs> you know, no. she knew that I did this. And so I just didn't think our marriage would survive it. And so I'm thinking if she doesn't find out, great. But when she found out, and it's so weird, Diana, that when she found out, I was actually relieved. Even though I knew it could ruin mm -hmm. my marriage because I wanted so bad to stop, I just couldn't. I didn't know how. And I'm thinking, wow, I don't want to lose my wife. I mean, I really didn't want to lose my marriage, but I'm thinking, wow, if I don't stop, I'm going to die. Yes. You know, I'm going to die. And so I had this two, this balance. Am I going to lose my wife, but I can live 
or I'm going to die if she doesn't find out. And I couldn't stop. And she even asked me, said, would you have stopped? And I said, I don't believe I would have. I said, because I couldn't. But um, so I was so glad she did find out. And I did struggle to save my marriage, but I had done so much damage. And for her now, could our marriage been saved? Yes, but she would have to been at such a level um, spiritually to be able to give me that kind of grace and mercy. Because it's one thing, could you imagine the mental torture she would have to go through to rebuild trust and to triggers or whenever, if I didn't make it home on time or if I didn't return a phone call, mm -hmm. the, the maturity level it would have taken for her to do it emotionally and spiritually was too much to ask. And yeah. there are a few people who I met in my lifetime could have handled that. Um, I I'm not wishing that on anybody. But at the same time, I know what I now I see what it takes to be able to deal with that because I've seen how much I've grown. And now I'm a person who has given a lot. I give a lot of grace and mercy. And for my wife to be able to do that for me, she would have had to had to be in a position to need it, to understand. In other words, I can forgive a lot easier now, Diana, than the average person because of what I've done to other people right. and, what is, and what has been done to me. I've forgiven my abuser. And, I've, and now I've learned to forgive myself and I understand now the grace and the mercy I would want, now I'm freely to give it to somebody else. But at that time, my ex-wife had not been, she had not been in a position where she's hurt somebody that bad before. So I tell people, if you really wanna know how to experience unconditional love, you know how to, if you really wanna think, well, I would love to give, I think I can give unconditional love. I don't really think you know how to give it unless you've been in a position where you really needed it. Because I don't really think you can understand what the mental torture somebody's going through unless you've been through it yourself to understand that, wow, I've been on that side where I deserve death. And now somebody gives it to you. Now you're free to give it to somebody else. And so uh, I'm a person with, I'm a very, very forgiving person. And I think well, it's because good. I've been on the side of being an abuser and being abused. Were there people that came into your life that helped you get back on the right path? Um, yes, there were, there were, there were uh, a handful of people, uh, my sister, my mom, um, she, uh, rest in peace, who passed away in 2019. My mom was there for me, my sister, um, my best friend, um, um, who led me to, um, to the Lord, uh, my roommate from college, and my half-brother. I have a half-brother, too. And these are the people closest to me, as well as my a former assistant that I used to have. She was there for me as well. But they weren't responsible for um, getting me there. They were responsible for keeping me there. Because oh. when I, they didn't know, I hid all this stuff from them too. Oh, but when man. I came clean to them, they became my support system that when I was struggling, they would always check on me to make sure I'm doing fine. That I felt now that if I was struggling, I didn't feel ashamed and embarrassed to go tell somebody. Because I had, now I felt a safe place I could go to say, mom, because especially imagine going through what I went through sexually, didn't have to go tell your mother about that. That could be very yeah. embarrassing to talk yes. to your mom about, hey, you know, I'm struggling this way or to talk to my sister about it. It was easy to talk to men, but I was able to talk to the closest women in my life, my assistant, my sister, my mom. I was able to talk to them as well as talk to some men about it. So they were very supportive and very helpful in my, my I call it, that goes from rags to riches, from ruin to redemption. They were part of my redemption story of me being able to um forgive myself and to um to break away from the shame and the guilt because they just poured into me and just kept me encouraged 
And I wonder, I said, I wonder if I wasn't close to them, if I was just some average guy, would they have supported me that way? Or would they have judged me harshly too? Like I was afraid to be judged, but they were so supportive, man. And to this day, I'm still indebted to them for how much they love me. And that also encouraged me to give that love and extend it to other people as well. Because I don't know where I would be if they didn't embrace me and not just shun me for what I did. Now, when did you, uh, when did you get saved or get back with the Lord? What, what was well, the story it, behind that? Now that, you know, that'll be a separate story of, um, I remember rags to riches, ruined the redemption. This will be a separate story of, um, I was, um, forced to go to church when I was a kid by my mom, <laughs> she made us go to church and she stopped going to church after my grandfather passed. Cause that's when she mm -hmm. went into depression and started drinking. But even after she started drinking, she still made us go to church. Yep. And so I went to church, um, out of obligation. And also because my mom told us we wouldn't go outside if we didn't go to church. So it was, she threatened <laughs> us to go to church. So I knew about God as in Jesus, as my savior, I did not know him as Lord. Did not mm -hmm. know him as Lord. So I went the rest of my years, you know, just afraid to go to hell and wanted to go to heaven. But I didn't think about giving my life over to God. I just thought, okay, I don't, I don't not going to hell. Great. But as I got older and I still went to church, when I got away from my mom, I went to church when I felt like it now, not because I had to go. So I kind of just kind of went in and out of church. And it wasn't until I met one of my best friends, I told you, who helped me with the redemption part of my story. He was one of my former students. Because I was such a young professor, a lot of my students were close to my age. And so he was one mm -hmm. of a student who I mentored and he gave his life to Christ while I was mentoring him and his life was transformed <laughs> and turned around. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, wow. it was 180 degrees, this kid. And I'm thinking, I said, kid, he was only like five years younger than I was. <laughs> and I'm thinking, wow, this is not going to last. He's not going to, this he's, I said, it doesn't take all that to follow Christ and everything, you know. I'm happy for him. God bless him. You know, I'm just like, he's my brother in Christ. Great. But it doesn't take his radical approach to doing this. Well, he ended up um, leading me to rededicating my life to Christ because I watched his life and his life spoke volumes to me. Mm -hmm. And he witnessed to me again. He says, I know, Joe, you go to church. I know you believe in God, but do you really know him? He challenged me on this. It was on July the 7th at 2.50 p.m. in my office in my office on campus and Amen. he challenged me on it and I broke down crying because I realized that I knew Christ but I didn't have a relationship with Christ not like he had and I wanted that and that's and, you know and this is still before I lost it all so he rededicated he you know he reintroduced me to Christ and I found Christ and life couldn't get any better and I had community I had brotherhood and all of a sudden I got a great job teaching at another university in another city and I broke away from that group. This is for social media, the internet, oh, yeah. and all this other stuff. And so I remember his famous words to me, he says, Joe, I just don't believe God is telling you to leave this city because I was moving from Pensacola to Tallahassee. This is my dream job. He says, I said, what are you so concerned about, John? He says, you're not going to have us. We're not going to be in your life. You're not going to have this accountability. You're not going to have this. And I said, oh, don't worry about it. I'll get it when I get to Tallahassee. And of course, what happened? I get to that new city and nope. I didn't get community. I didn't get connected. I went to church, but yeah. I didn't have brotherhood. I didn't have community. What I do now for a living, I yes. didn't have this. And don't you know, as I slowly pulled away from John and started communicating with him less, that's when I got pulled away. 
and all the time I'm doing all this stuff to my, my ex-wife, I'm going to church. Yeah. I'm even leading in church, which tells you a lot. I'm leading guys in church and yet I'm living this double life. And of course I'm more, now I'm so ashamed. I don't even want to talk to John anymore now mm. to tell how, how bad it's gotten, but he was absolutely right that I'm, I pulled out of community. So, so basically in a sense now, uh, I started with just going to church. He was Jesus, and Jesus was just my savior. Then he became my savior and my Lord. And then I backslid. And now I don't want to tell anybody about it. But when I finally hit rock bottom and realized that God was the rock at the bottom, then I said, okay, God, I'm back. I'm all in. But this time I'm not going to do it alone. I'm going to have community around me. And I've been walking in that ever since. I don't know how you describe that story of that relationship because that is the most schizophrenic relationship with Christ you can ever imagine. <laughs> Actually, it's pretty common. I've I've heard that is from really? a lot of people that yeah, very similar story to you. It's it's a journey, but I like that rock at the bottom. He is yeah. the rock at the bottom. Yeah, he was the rock that. at the bottom, and I realized, <laughs> wow, this is it. I can't. Okay, God, I really surrender now. And and so if I guess if I had to look at it back, I'll say I. My mom forced me, then my friend led me, and I was in community, and then I tried to do it on my own. And now I'm following, yeah, I'm following Jesus, but I'm following him with the help of my community and my brotherhood. And I realize now that a man is only as strong as the number of other godly men he has in his life. And you can say the same thing about women too. Yes. And so I realized that the strength and the faith that I have now, it's not on my own. It's because I have so much support. Diana, if you could, if you knew the number of men in my life, you would think he's overcompensating again. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> but, but here's the, you know, and the people could say it because I would, I'm telling you, and this is not an over-exaggeration. Most people, if you're lucky to have an inner circle in your lifetime of about two or three people who, if you went to jail, you would call them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Those kind of people who would never judge you they would never walk away from you. They'll never abandon you. If you found a dead body in your bed next to you, there'd be the people you call <laughs> to get rid of it. And if you meet two or three people like that in a lifetime, you are fortunate. Yes. I'm not kidding you when I'm getting ready to tell you right now. I have at least about 30 or 40 of those type of people. Well, you are a rich that's, man, brother. That's Yeah. That's more than, I got to believe that's more than 95% of the population. Yes. I've got five. And, Maybe. Yeah, see, and, and to me, and you don't really need that as many as I have. But people say, why do you have so many? Because now, beyond that, I got some great friends in the hundreds. But I'm talking about if I was in jail, I could call at least 30 or 40 people, and they would not even judge me over it. I could tell them I murdered somebody, and they're not, they won't judge me over it. Remember I tell you I had about five already. Yes. And now it's multiplied into more. But people ask me, why do you have so many? And, I, and this is my rationale. That's why I don't think it's overcompensation because I've never heard anybody who's a believer in Christ or any people who are not believers ever say this. You know what? I have too many great close friends in my life. I need to cut some of them loose. This is too many. I've never heard anybody say that. So how can you ever have too many? If I tell people in my groups that isolation is a death sentence. Absolutely. Isolating yourself um, is, is the wrong way. And so I, I realize now that I can't have too many. So what I do, the reason why I have so many, cause I actively recruit COVID slowed me down a lot because mm -hmm. about at least every week or every other week, I will be taking somebody out to lunch or coffee who I didn't know. 
because I want to build a relationship to see how deep could this relationship go. Because not every person I meet ends up becoming in my, I call it my inner circle. Uh, or I, my wife calls it, she says I have a spiritual board of directors. I said, my <laughs> yeah. spiritual board of directors. Not everybody makes it into that because I'm, in, I'm auditioning all the time and interviewing people to see if they're going to be in it. And if they're not in it, that's cool too. They'll just be good friends. But I, but I have an inner circle, a large inner circle of, and they, most of them don't even know each other. But I can get on the phone right now. When I mean, I lost my mom. She was the seventh person I lost in one year. And so and, and when I lost mom in 2019, these were the people I could call and say, I'm having a rough day. Mm-hmm. Man, I don't feel like doing ministry anymore. Man, I mean, this is, this is too much. And is this really the best use of my time? I'm going to walk away from this. I didn't tell everybody that, but I told them that. And they were the people who were holding my arms up like, um, um, like, like Moses arms being held up by, by Aaron and her, you know, just holding them up and they were holding me up mm-hmm. and I needed these, these people in my life. So I actively recruit people to be in my inner circle. I'm always looking for them. I have um, six mentors who um, pour into me. They're not even, I don't even consider them my six. inner circle. Six. Wow. That's what I mean. I told you, I got six of those guys oh my goodness. in my life and they're not even in my inner circle. They're just, mm. not, they're my Pauls in my life. I got at least six Pauls in my life and I'm always recruiting them. They're, they're the hardest to recruit, by the way, is the Pauls because I have a very high standard of what I, <laughs> what I want for my well, Pauls. You have to. <laughs> yeah, so they got to be on another level for me to say, I want that person pouring into me. And so that's what has sustained me now. So it's so much different than what I was trying to do it on my own. And now I wouldn't even attempt to do life by myself now. Would never even attempt to do it. And this is coming from a guy who couldn't trust men. I mean, I couldn't stand men. I I just thought you couldn't trust them. They're going to abandon you. They're angry. They'll abuse you like I was abused. Mm -hmm. And God has done such a, a transformation of my heart is that now I feel like I can't live without men in my life. I just feel like I can't breathe. If I don't have men in my life who can call me out, not only um, they can call me up, but can call me out on my junk. Yes. And tell me when I'm not doing, I'm not living right. I'm not loving my wife right. I'm not leading my family right. They have permission to speak into my life. And my wife even, even uses it against me now. She says, should I call your men? Do I need to call you guys? <laughs> I'm doing, she would threaten to call them. She would Good actually woman. do that. Good woman. Yeah, she would say, I'm, I'm gonna, do I need to call one of your mentors? Do I need... I said, no, no, I'm good. <laughs> All right. So she gets, she uses it to get my attention now to be able to get me to listen. And so that's, so I'm blessed. Like you said, I am rich beyond my wildest dreams when it comes to relationships. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Now, what are some, what are some practical ways we as women can support the males in their lives without sounding like we're nagging or, you know, you know, being too judgmental or well you know there's there's a lot of ways that women could support us but i think one of the the best ways women can support us is to understand uh, understanding certain things about us that i'm not saying it makes sense <laughs> but they, they but i think that it's helpful in going on to support us and because and, i think a lot of women don't know this about us as men and I, it's no different than if i ask you the same question how can we support women you would tell me things that most of us as men don't really get or understand. And saying, if you guys can understand this, you can support us better. So that's what I will offer when it comes to, to helping women, to help them understand us better. And again, don't judge us. I'm just helping you understand us better how you can support us. Right. That I think what, what 
women really need to know about us is that most men, and I say the majority of us men, that our self-worth and our identity is tied to our ability to provide for you. Right. I'm not saying it's right. Um, God doesn't want us to have our define who we are based on what we have and what we can do. He wants us to find who we are based on who he says we are. And that's a man who's healthy spiritually. But most mm -hmm. of us are not there spiritually mature enough to understand we're not what we do. We're not what we did. We're not what we earn. We're not what we achieve. We're who God says we are. And I think women understand that they can support us better when they realize that when a man loses his job, he's really in a very, very vulnerable state. Yes. Where most women will look at it and say, okay, baby, I love you. I'm just going to reassure them. I love you. It doesn't even matter how long it takes you to find a job. That sounds sweet and nice. You're not getting it. You're not get, You're not really understanding. No. Well, he, what should we say? <laughs> what should we say? <laughs> no. You, what, what you need to just, uh, just let him process and, and let him go through, let him go through pulling away and isolating. Don't let him stay there, but let him do it. And don't try to pursue him to try to say, it's going to be all right. And because he, you, you think he needs encouragement. What he look, what he needs is a job. <laughs> what he needs is hope that he's going to find a job. And so whatever you can to, to assure him that you believe in him. Mm -hmm. And, and not, again, not that everything will be right that I believe in you because he's doubting himself. So he's thinking his worth. That's why I say he thinks his worth. Assure him of his value. Man, we know you're going to take care of us. Even if he doesn't know how he's going to do it, let him know you believe that he will. Because because he, because you're thinking, what if he doesn't find a job? He needs to know we're going to be all right. No, 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 no. He's not thinking that. He's thinking, I can't do it. I'm not, uh, I'm a lousy man. Mm -hmm. What kind of man can't take care of his family? We believe in you. Huh, and see, this is something you should be doing even before he loses a job is encourage him of who he is. He's good enough. He's man enough. He has what it takes. Now, he should get that from his father. But what women can do is encourage him and his self-worth and who he is. But unfortunately, he attaches a lot of that to what he does, what he does. And so and I, I don't think women understand how deep that that goes. The way the best way I explain it this way is, Diana, is that if. I was homeless, right? If my family, we became homeless. My wife, I have such a supportive wife that she will be the person that says, Joe, is it my turn to hold up the sign? Hold up the sign? It's, you know, let's wait, baby, you know. And she would think that's great. And she would be encouraging. But what she doesn't understand is the inner conflict that's going on because what she's thinking, okay, Joe's fine. You know, we're together. I'm not browbeating him. I'm not beating him up over that he lost his job. We're homeless. But what she doesn't understand is that when people are driving by, they feel sorry for our family, but they're judging me. At least that's what I believe. I feel they're just, why can't that man find a job? And she doesn't have to deal with that pressure. So understanding the pressure he's under to provide, the pressure he's under because he can't afford. takes. So women need to understand, even when he has a job, of understanding that his, his thing is he believes his self-worth is attached to what he can provide. Whatever you can do to go against that. To assure him he is, man, I'm, you know, you're a great provider, even though he doesn't think he's providing enough. Man, you know, we believe in you. I'm hoping I'm giving the phrases. We believe in you. Oh, you have what it takes. Because he should have received that from his dad. Mm -hmm. 
or some other man and he hasn't heard it enough to believe it. You know, so that'll be one of the first things I would say that, that you can help us is understand that a lot of times it's not good, but we attach our self-worth and our identity to what we do. Also, now this is important that <laughs> I think a way a woman can help us if they have to understand that um, a man needs to know and believe he can satisfy you and make you happy. I don't think women really get this. <laughs> now, I'm not talking about just sexually, but I'm talking about in all areas of your life. He needs to know he's good enough for you. That goes back to his identity and his self-worth. I'm good enough for you. That it's possible to please you. Here's what you don't want a, a, your husband or any man in your life to ever think. And if he says any of this, this is the beginning of the end of a relationship. I'll never be able to make her happy. She'll never be satisfied. I'll never be good enough for her. This triggers some past trauma and wounds when he was growing up that he didn't believe he was capable enough. I tell women, be hard to get, but not impossible to please. Does that make sense? Yes. Let him pursue you, but let him catch you. And then wiggle out of his, out of him again, and then let him chase you again and let him catch. He needs to keep believing he's winning. Does that make sense what I'm saying, <laughs> Diana? But if he thinks he can't win at all, he's going to stop playing. He's going to check out mentally and emotionally. And, you know, for the older people out there, he's going to take his marbles and go home. Aww. I can't win. And he's going to throw <laughs> like a tantrum and he's going to leave. Because we rather, we rather not play the game than to play and lose. You want him to play the game and let him win. Let him feel like he's winning. and But don't let him get satisfied with that. Let him pursue you again, but let him catch you. But that woman who's impossible to catch, he's going to stop chasing you. And guess what he's going to pursue? A woman he can catch. Yes. That's you. Remember what happened to me? Yes. When I'm thinking, I, why is she not happy? And I told you, all it took was that first woman said, if I was your wife, basically what I was hearing this, oh, I could catch you? I could <laughs> win with you? That's a fool's goal, <laughs> thinking I can win, but I just need to get a win. And so let him know he can win with you. Um, I would say another, let me think about what else I was tell a woman that she can do to help her husband. Um, I said, if he's going down the wrong path, then what? You're, you're watching him going down the wrong way. Maybe now, address that. And, and what, in what scenario? Give me a scenario where he's going down the wrong way with something. Oh, he started drinking. He started just like some of the things that you did. He's, he's starting to, you know, look at porn. He's starting to you know, make those late nights. You don't know where he's at. Right. Oh, spending too much money. Um, well, the ideal situation is to um, kind of curtail that before it actually gets out of hand. But that was going to go into something else I was going to suggest how women can help us. Um, if he's going down that path, one thing I think women can do to support us and help us is um, let him know it's okay to be vulnerable around you. Give him a safe place that he could talk about his struggles. We mentioned the alcohol or the pornography. Why is he doing it? The reason why he's doing it, because he can't deal with the pain. Mm -hmm. So he's looking to medicate. He's looking to cope. So he doesn't believe anybody can understand him and what he's struggling. Man, I'm struggling to provide and I can't provide. I'm going to drink. Man, I can't keep, you know, my wife doesn't know how bad our finances are. And I'm thinking I'm going to lose my job. I'm, we're going to be homeless because I'm going to take drugs or whatever. He needs to have a safe place where he's vulnerable and that you don't see it and still, uh, he doesn't appear to be weak to you even when he's being vulnerable. 
Mm-hmm. Because remember, his masculine side of him thinks, okay, if I show you Clark Kent, you're going to think I'm weak. Mm-hmm. He has to know that's a lie from the enemy. You're not going to think he's weak because he's vulnerable. He's struggling. He feels weak. My wife made a statement to me once. She says that, do you know, you're, I, to me, you're the strongest when I see you at your weakest. I'm like, what? <laughs> what do you mean I'm my strongest? She says, because when you struggle, because now what I've been through, I tell my wife when I'm struggling. But I, but that's still that part, that man side of me wants to think, well, she's going to think, I'm because my wife is an ex-cop, ex-military. She's a G.I. Jane. Oh, wow. Tough as nails, right? So do I really want to tell my wife that I'm struggling? And I'm, But she told me when I tell her that, it appears to her that I'm, that she says that appeals to her as being me being my strongest. I said, why is that when I feel like I'm telling you my weakest moments? She says, because it tells me you trust me and you're not ashamed to struggle. She said, because I look at you as being this good leader of our home. And I think he can't relate to when I'm struggling because he never struggles. But when mm-hmm. you tell me you're struggling and I see how you process it, I know now I can come along and be a helper, be your help me to do it. But at the same time, I realize now that, wow, he is human. You know, he's not Superman. Now, what can I do to support him? But so if I do, because I can't tell you I'm not going to go back to porn, Diana. I can't tell you I'm not going to be led astray. But even if I do, I now don't feel ashamed to be able to tell my wife about it. Mm. Because she's provided me in that place that she's not going to say I'm weak if I tell her, Tanya, I'm really struggling. Tanya, will you pray for me? She's not going to say, what do you mean pray for you? No, what if, and she's not going to feel insecure that I'm now being tempted by porn. I feel like I can tell her. Now, the great thing is because I have so many men in my life, it doesn't take me having to go to tell my wife. I can tell other guys. That's a great thing of having a lot of men in your life. So I don't have to now look for coping mechanism. I just dump it on my men, you know, yeah. and they tell me. And but But I also feel safe enough to go to Tanya about it and tell her. So if women really want to support their husbands, you got to provide a safe place for him to, to, to share, to be vulnerable without him appearing to be weak. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll say another way that you can help. And I'll stop here because I can keep going on for days about how women can support us. Cause we got a lot of problems as men, <laughs> but, one <laughs> of the, but one of the ways you can support us is encourage us to have male relationships, the right ones. Right. Don't feel like you're that because he's in male relationships, don't see that as a threat to you. You know what I'm saying, Diana? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you spend all those time around those men and you're not spending enough time with us and da, 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 da. Now, I get it that you don't, you, you should spend time around you. It's not about is he spending time around, around men. Is it the right men? Because if it is, and listen to me on this, Diana, you want him yeah. spending a lot of time mm-hmm. around those men. Trust what I'm telling you. My wife is, I wish my wife was on here today. She would tell you right now, she's the person are you meeting? She wants to know if I'm meeting with my guys. When are you going to see your guys? Oh, like last night we had, we call, we call them mandates. Right? <laughs> and I get with my guys. We met, we meet at this barbecue place and we just, all us as guys, we come together once a quarter. This is locally here in our city. We come together once a quarter. Now I just came home from the road from Orlando um, from uh, a trip, come home, only saw my wife briefly. And she saw me while she was leaving, and she knew that later she's gonna see me that night. And I told Tanya, Tanya, we got our mandate tonight. Guess what she didn't say? But you just got home. I haven't seen you. 
what's going on? She didn't say that. All right, I'll see you when you get home. And she couldn't wait because she knew that every time I come around from those guys, I come home better, stronger, Absolutely. more attentive, more sensitive. And so it's not about that he's spending time away from you. Is he spending around the right men? And if he is, encourage it. Matter of fact, introduce him to men you want him to emulate and to be like. Encourage him. I can't stress that enough to women. The, the more men he's around, the stronger your marriage is going to be. The right men, the strong. That, that's your insurance policy for your marriage. Him being around godly men. I can't, I'm telling you, I can't stress that enough. I, if more women knew that, they will be recruiting men for their husbands if they understood how powerful that is. So to me, that's a way to support. They're going to help him stay out of pornography and addiction. They're going to help him stay out of his eyes wandering, him being tempted, him abusing you. They're going to keep him from doing that because they're, they're constantly asking him about it all the time when you're not around. How's your relationship with your wife? How are you and Diana doing? Are you lying to me? <laughs> you see what I mean? When the last mm -hmm. time you spent time with Diana? How, how, you know, when the last time you talked to your kids? How's it going with your kids? Have you been taking your, your daughter out on dates? They're asking them all these questions. Even you're not asking me all these questions. In other words, you said, without being a nag, let them be the nag. They will become the nag for him and not you. All you need to know is, are you meeting with your guys? Hey, how's your relationship with the guys going? Hey, when next time are you going to hang out with the guys? You need <laughs> to keep encouraging that. They're your insurance. But that's why my wife threatens, do I need to talk to your men? Because she knows they will get on me if I won't listen to her. And so mm. that's why you want to encourage it. If you really want to support him, get around as many great godly men as you possibly can. It's so powerful and such great advice. And um, wouldn't that take a lot of pressure off you, Diana, so you don't have to do it all? <laughs> so, yes, I got a lot of things to do. So that is It's not like really you guys helpful. are not busy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm, you got the so kids, busy. you got him. You got to, do you really now want to try to fix him all the time? <laughs> you know? You don't have that kind of time. You just need to just love on him, encourage him, and let him let him feel that he's enough for your family. He is. My hubby is awesome. Mm -hmm. I wanted to give you enough time to talk about your resources and what you can offer to uh, men that are listening, because I know you're out there um, who are are stuck in their in their past and maybe their present. Um, so tell them about about some of your resources. Yeah, I, I'll share with you um, uh, quickly kind of what we do, and I'm going to give them a free resource that they definitely have to check out. Um, it's a video. It's about a 30 to a 33-minute video, and it's called The Five Critical Things Every Kingdom Man Needs to Succeed in His Life. And it's basically what our ministry is built on, these five things. And this video would kind of explain to you how important those five things are. And I'll kind of touch on them a little bit, but the video will do a lot better job than I explain it. But the resource, if they want to find out, they just go to rmcfree.com, rmcfree.com, and they'll get access to that video. Um, it's kind of like a short masterclass, and they'll get that. But basically what we do is our ministry, we help men win at what matters and frustrates them the most. As husbands, as fathers, as spiritual leaders in their home. And what we do is we provide and we help them by providing them with um, community with a brotherhood and community of men. We provide that with connection by having that inner circle of guys in their life who, and we provide them with coaches and mentors who will pour into the life. I told you, I got six of them. We provide them with counseling to help them. These are part of the pillars and it's all on a Christ centered focus. 
And so if they want to find out more, they can always visit our website at realmenconnect.com and it, it links them to everything that we have. But if they want to really understand how important these five critical things, Jesus had these five things in his life. And we model our manhood based on following Jesus. And it is so amazing when you see that, wow, the five things that Jesus had, most of them Jesus didn't even need. Mm -hmm. but we, so the question is, when, why did he have them? I really believe it was to show us what we needed. And he says his, his last words to us is uh, when he, and then he, he this, uh, ascended to heaven and he left the disciples. He says, go make disciples. Teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you. He, in other words, he said, you watched me for three years. Do what you see me do. Speak the way you heard me speak. Serve the way you saw me serve. Support and love others the way you saw me love others. Do exactly what you saw me do. And that's what we're trying to teach men, what, those five things. So let's do what we saw Jesus do. Here's how you do it. And we teach men how to do that and how to live that way. But if they go to realmenconnect.com, that's our website to take them to everything that we have. But if they want to watch that video, it's rmc, um, rmcfree.com. RMC stands for Real Men Connect, free.com. Listen to the podcast. You know, you know I even, and so. isn't that a funny, Diane? I even mentioned the doggone podcast, which is the top rated podcast for Christian men on Apple Podcasts. It is. And you it's know, awesome. It, but you know why I forgot to mention that? And, and I guess I shouldn't say this, but I'll, but I, I'll tell the guys the truth. That is what we're known for is our podcast. Most people find us through our podcast. But I always forget to mention the podcast because it's, I hate to admit it, but it's the lowest hanging fruit and it's the least they should do is listen to the podcast. It's just a way, it's like bait to get them to yeah, really find gotta, out what we do. You got to start somewhere, right? Yeah, you got to start somewhere. But most men keep thinking, oh, if I listen to this podcast, this is a great podcast. They don't have to do anything else except passively listen to other men's stories and listen to strategies and ideas. And then they walk away with the false sense that, okay, now that I heard from Diana's interview, what I need to do, I'm good. No, 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 you're still missing it. The interview was to get you to understand how important you need to be in community, to have brotherhood. So I often forget it because I keep thinking that's not the only thing, it's just the first step. You know, but I'm hoping they don't stop at the podcast. But oh, by all means, listen to the podcast. It's great. It is awesome. But it please is. don't stop at just listening passively to the podcast. We love it. We we got a lot of listeners all in 136 countries. I think it's awesome. But if all you're doing is listen to the podcast and that's all you do and you never reach out to us, our community, then you miss the whole point. It's not just you listening. It's you getting connected. Why do you think we call it real men connect we didn't say real men listen to podcasts <laughs> but they don't get their foot in the pool that's right get your that's the first step is getting your foot into that pool listen to that podcast and jump in yeah i have a mentor program myself for the ladies but mm -hmm. if i get any men i am sending them your way brother because, thank you diana i appreciate that. um i so believe in your ministry and um yeah if you have men that need you know recovery from abuse you know mending the soul we do have men's groups you know mm -hmm. separate from the women so mm -hmm. facilitated by men other abuse mm -hmm. survivors so i will uh roll out the red carpet for them well thank you diana i appreciate that too i i tell people that we know our ministry is effective when 
the wives of the husbands always ask their husbands this, do they have something like that for women? What you guys have, that's when we know we've done an effective job. When they're asking what we have, do they have this for women? Because what we realize is what you're doing now, that women need community too. They need connection. They need a safe place to share and to be able to heal and to grow. And so I always assume women already had it. I didn't know that a lot of women don't have it either. And, but I just know that I don't know too many men who do. That's why we did what we did. But that's our way, our litmus test is when the women, the feedback we get from women thinking, continue to do what you do. And I wish you had something like that for women. Well, this, this hour has just flown by and it's been wow. such a blessing. <laughs> and I can't believe you jammed all that stuff in a short period of time. <laughs> but um, this was really enjoyable and um, God bless you and your ministry. And, and thank you for what you do. And thank you, Diana, for doing what you do, because as a, um, a person, a, a victim of abuse and survivor of abuse, um, I realize how important now resources like ours is. I didn't know it before, but I know it now. And um, thank you for the work that you're doing. All right, brothers and sisters, that was so incredible. Uh, I know that you were blessed by his interview. And please, please share this episode with your guy friends. Just like we had um, Dr. Palfi on the show. The show is for your your brother, your sons, your your husband, your grandfather, a friend. Share this episode with them. Connect with Dr. Joe. As you can tell, he's he's very approachable, very understanding, non-judgmental. Stick your foot in the pool <laughs> and um, get those resources that he's offered. And I'm always here, as you know, with uh, the mentoring classes and Mending the Soul. Those you can find on my website. I am just finishing up um, a Mending the Soul group next week. Uh, so I am free one extra day. So I have a spot for mentoring another person. So if that is you and you need a mentor, I'm available for you. Um, if you haven't heard the mentoring episode, um, go back and listen to that. It was pretty recent and that goes into all the details of my mentorship program. And uh, there's also one for Mending the Soul. What's it like to be in a Mending the Soul group? And um, as I mentioned, um, it is available for both men and women. Um, they are facilitated by men and women separately. So, so if you need anything, please connect with me. I have all the information in the show notes for you. Uh, Diana at dswministries.org is my email and my website, dswministries.org. And Dr. Joe gave you his information, Real Men Connect. So I hope you all have a fantastic week. And remember, you are not a victim any longer. You are victorious. So God bless you this week. Thank you for listening to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast. If this episode has been helpful to you, please hit the subscribe button and tell a friend. You can connect with us at dswministries.org, where you'll find our blog along with our Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel links. 
Hope to see you next week.